Well, let's go ahead and go to the text in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, as we continue our study and the reading of 1 John. <clears throat> if you can or able to come to your feet as we, so we can read the word, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. And the word of God says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. (coughs) Dear Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would just bless your word. That you would teach us more about yourself, your character, who you are, and what you've done for us. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we've gone through this letter, um, just to get some context before we dig in, a reminder, you know, that John is writing this letter to uh, churches or a church in, in Asia Minor. And obviously, we can read through this letter as we go through it. I mean, it'll take you less than 30 minutes if you sit down and read the chapters of this entire letter. There's a group of this, of this gathering of this church that somehow left. They, they seceded. And... John is writing here to the church a series of commands and imperatives so they can self-examine themselves. Because the key theme in this entire letter is to confirm and be sure you have fellowship, communion with God. And he goes through, he's going, to, he's going through a series of uh, declarations, imperatives, commands, so that they can examine themselves. Because they're questioning, I'm sure, are we in the right place? Are we Christians? Because some have left, and they might have left because of either a different teaching, and they might be trying to proselyte them into where they're at. And so John writes this because assurance of salvation is necessary. It is good, and it's something God wants to give, and obviously through his word. And then, you know, we remember through chapter 1, and now we're in the middle of chapter 2, that, you know, John says some statements that are pretty definitive. There's not a lot of wiggle room. He says things like in chapter 1, you either are in the light or you're in darkness. Those who are in the light do not practice and do not have a relationship with darkness. He says things about love. And they're pretty, very bold, very direct, because he wants them to be sure. And so here in verse 15 to 17, you know, three main headings just to gather our, our mind around is, in verse 15, we're going to talk about the command. Don't not, do not love the world. Then verses uh, 16 and the first half of 17, we'll talk about the world. And obviously the elements that, that make up this world. Then lastly, the reward. So command, the world, and the reward. That's just kind of like the uh, breadcrumbs we're going to follow to get through these verses. So let's start with verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So in this section of scripture we're going to read here and we're going to focus on, the command is simple. It's very clear. This is an imperative. And it's very clear. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Question is, what is the world then? Another question is, what is so bad about this world? It is mentioned six times, the word world, in these verses that we're reading. Uh, the Greek word that we get, the word cosmos. So the world are those attitudes, values, which are opposed to God and His holiness. It is the life and culture of finite human society that is under and organized by the evil one, apart from God. John mentions the world as a whole, but he also says the things that are, that are of the world. And these things are pieces, threads, elements that make the world up as a whole. And so when he says world, we need to understand what he, we need to understand what he means. When he, he's thinking of not the material universe, but of a system that is the source of opposition to God. And is also the temptation to sin. This realm does not and will not recognize Christ and despises those who do follow Christ. It is the stronghold of false teachers and those who reject the testimony of God's word. John will see later says in chapter 519 that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The ancient serpent, the father of lies, the murderer of the brethren from the beginning. Because we need to understand he's speaking of a structure, a system, not the world physical. Because remember, what, what does John say in his gospel, in chapter 3, verse 16? God so loved the world. And in that context, he's speaking of the world as people. But here John is speaking about the world as a structure, a realm, a culture, a manner of living. So he gives two reasons to encourage obedience to this command. Don't love the world. The first one is... The incompatibility of love of the world with the love of the Father. Secondly, the disastrous ending, the destined outcome of the world, contrasted with the eternality of those who do God's will. Before he explains what the world is in verse 16, he gives a conditional statement at the end of verse 15 to clarify the consequences of loving the world. It says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Condition statement here. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So in John's statement here, there is no gray area, no neutrality, no jockeying for position or understanding, no going through a phase or possibilities or maybes. Love for the Father stands in complete opposition and contrast to love for the world. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and you will despise the other. James 4, 4 says in his letter, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world 
makes himself an enemy of God. The love of the world and the things of the world is an attraction for something that one desires to enjoy, have, possess, cherish, find satisfaction in, indulge. And these are things that are not in the light. It is to want to participate and indulge in what is in sharp contrast and against and rebellion against God. John is saying your heart, your affections, cannot be placed in the darkness and in the light on the world or on God at the same time. It's one or the other. Uh, Robert Yarborough comments on this verse. He says, people either, con- either conquer by the sun... Or they get conquered. There is light and darkness. There is love and hate. There is salvation and perdition. John seems to be gripped by the great gulf that separates life in the sun from everything else that exists. You cannot love the world and have the love of the Father. So, you know, two main reasons why one sets one, uh, one who sets his love on the world cannot uh, places affections on God, I think of two things. One, true love for the Father requires receiving God's love first, as revealed and demonstrated to the Son, most, most uh, explicitly through the cross. John says later in this letter, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. For there to be love for the Father, there first must be love by the Father. Secondly, true love for God exists in a heart and a life and a soul of a believer. When in his life, heart, and soul, there are no rivals. John of Damascus says, It is impossible for the love of God to coexist with love for the world. Just as it is impossible for light and darkness to be present at the same time. So John is very clear in his statements here. What the command is, do not love the world. And he gives this condition here saying, if you love the world, you cannot love God. It is one or the other. Now, obviously, this is not saying because we sometimes when we read John here in this letter, we hear these polarizing explicit statements. And we like, there's no wiggle room. But if you remember, and I remember Pastor Henry covered this in chapter 2 earlier, he talks about, you're going to sin. But there is a what? Mediator. So John is not saying we do not sin. He just says, the one who is born again, the one who is in Christ, the one who is in the light, he will not be in darkness. And the one who's been born again and has Christ, is possessed by the Holy Spirit, he will not love the world. But we do sin. And like earlier in chapter 2 says, there is a mediator. So let's go to the next word, verse 16. The world. And here John gets three representative elements of the sinful structure. Verse 16, let's read it. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So let's break down these three elements. That John summarizes here. First, the desires of the flesh. <coughs> this is in reference to cravings. 
cravings of the sinful man and his sinful nature. The word flesh here does have in mind sensual and, yes, sexual desires. But he's speaking of so much more. So many more other desires. It's really any desire, any sinful interest that draws us away from God. Anything that pleases the sinful nature and breaks continuing fellowship with God and makes it impossible. You know, and a lot of times, like I said, you know, we think right away of sexual things or addictions, and those are true. But the thing is, John is talking about anything that appeases the flesh that is contrary to God. As I read this, I remember me and my wife when we first got married. I got, we got married in June. I got laid off from my job in May. Um, so when I went to the altar, I was unemployed. You know I mean? Hey, guys, there's hope for you, okay? If I got married, you could do it. And so, you know, I, I, at first, you know, I wasn't worried, but then it took me over a year to find a job. But I remember this. I didn't think I was a materialistic person. I mean, hey, my mother and my dad took me to garage sales and thrift stores, so I didn't think I was materialistic. You know, but I remember we went to North Park Mall. We hadn't worked in about, you know, six months, ten months. And we said, well, let's walk around. I mean, that's what we, we did. And you know what? I remember walking around. To this day, my wife has never forgot that experience. We're talking about ten years ago. And every time we go to North Park, we look at each other and remember this. We walked around and saw all the things that we wanted, but we couldn't have. And we walked out of that place and silence and depressed, and we got in the car and couldn't even talk. And we got home and we realized, man, we're materialistic people. We didn't even know it. That's the worst part. Because sin is in varying degrees. I'm sure most people, you don't think you're greedy. You might not think you're selfish. But one of the beautiful things, and we were talking about this uh, the other night with some men, is that the beautiful sanctifying piece of marriage is it shows you at least in my case and some other men that mentioned it, that we are very selfish. And so, for instance, the, the sins and desires of the flesh, there are those that are very explicit, that, that, that shine bright like a star at night. You can see them a mile away. But there is sin that is subtle and hiding in the flesh. And part of our sanctification is growing and recognizing those things. I thought I wasn't greedy. I thought I wasn't selfish or materialistic. But a walk through North Park when you're unemployed, you know what I mean, showed us that, yes, we are about things. And there's nothing wrong with having things, but things should never have us. Secondly, the desires of the eyes. The word desires repeated twice here, as you, we can see. This is speaking of any sinful interest that can be cultivated by being seen. The eyes have the capacity to mislead and take us astray. As I read this, I remember David if you remember in uh, his, his episode with Bathsheba, he saw Bathsheba with his eyes. And the scripture said he desired her. Sin took him farther than he wanted to go. And it kept him longer than he wanted to stay. A gaze from the rooftop when he should have been somewhere else. Not only destroyed him, but you know, if you read uh, the life of David, as Nathan told him, the sword will never leave your house. And you know what? If you look at the children of David, four of them died. There was rape and murder among them. All because of what? A glancing look that was too long. 
The eye in many times is used also as a metaphor for a sinful passion that brings corruption. Let me give you an example here. Eve, in Genesis 3.6, in the garden, it says Eve was looking at what? Forbid, at the forbidden tree. And the fruit was what? Pleasing to the eye. Be careful what you see. Be careful of being misled. Lastly, the pride of life, the third element he mentions. This is the boasting in your lifestyle. The self-glorification of what one has, does, possess, or might be of what you've achieved. He is speaking of elitism, attitude or arrogance that springs from maybe money, wealth, possessions, rank, title, or your social status in your society. It says, look at me. What have I done? What I have built? It removes any hint or notion that you or I depend upon God. And I think a lot of times we don't use this kind of language, the pride of life. So I had to look into it, and the word life, bios in Greek, it means livelihood. If you remember uh, in Mark, when we have the widow with the two mites, it says she gave more than the rest. The word there, she gave away her livelihood. And so I think a lot of times, like in these other elements, we think, well, you know, I, I don't sin in my flesh. You know, I don't do those kind of things. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a decent person, we might say. Uh, my eyes, hey, I don't watch radar movies. You know, I'm not looking at porn, you know. And we may say that about the pride of life. The thing is, sin is pervasive. It's not always explicit and obvious. And that's why many times we need what? The help of the Spirit. And so here in the pride of life, you may say, well, you know what? I'm, I'm not rich. I'm not a mayor. I'm not high stature. But the thing is, a lot of times we're not, we're not uh, cognizant of how we speak of ourselves. Sometimes more than others. And it brings to mind what Paul says in Philippians. He's talking about the church right before he gets to the, the hymn about Christ's incarnation. He says, think of others more than yourselves. Then he says, take on the mind of Christ. And then he comes down with the hymn of Christ. What? Leaving glory, taking the form of a slave, a servant among people. The one who says he's not prideful, has no pride of life, with his statement alone, convicts himself. Because what? We do all struggle with pride. How many times do we, many times, struggle to eat our words and apologize? How generous and giving are we to people, to the church? Do we kind of like spend our money and what's left, if I have any, I'll give to the church or be generous? No, the pride of life, you know, as far as in, especially our livelihood and our assets, man, if, if we look at our checkbooks, we look at what we do our money, it says a lot about us, what you value. I remember something John Piper says, why God gave us money, he said. As one, to declare what you value, what you worship. Secondly, for the Christian to show that what? Money is not our God. You know, if you look at my uh, bank statement, and I ordered one, had to download it for the last 12 months because we're kind of rebudgeting me and my wife. And I looked at two stores that I spent a lot of money at. One was Half Price Bookstore. I spent a whole lot of money there. I got in trouble. And then the other one is Q-Trip, Q-Trip, Q-Trip. How is it Q-Trip or Q-Trip? I don't know. Because I, I always stop by there, 
and I get, I get this drink for me and the kids, like our Friday celebration, you know. But then also you can look and see, well, what do you give to the church and ministries? Our livelihood, our resources. And see here, as we continue reading the verse, it says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. And John buttons it up in that half of this second half of verse 16. He's talking about these three things, which are some, they're not, they're not exhaustive. It's a summary. He says, is not from the Father, but is from the world. These three elements, these three categories, and they're not exhaustive. They're a summary. He says, all those things are of the world, but let's be clear, John says, they are not from the Father, but from the world. First half of verse 17, and this is what will wrap up the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. The destined outcome. There is an eschaton, a prescribed ending that is written and promised by God. There is a sovereignly providential end to the world. The devil and all who have given their allegiance and loyalty to it. To what end, John says? He says, the world and his desires are passing away. It is fleeting. It has no permanence. Notice the present tense of the verb. Verb. It is not just going to pass away. It is currently, actively, ongoing in the process of passing away now. It is doomed, bound for destruction, and its days are numbered. Dangerous affections. Dangerous desires have a disastrous ending. John says they will pass away and the last hour will approach. Lastly, the reward, the second half of verse 17. The reward, obedience to the will of God, means eternal life. First John says, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Abiding forever. While worldliness has no future, John says the one who does the will of God abides forever. When the fallen cosmos, the world, and the prince of the power of the air cease, the church, comprised of those who are marked by doing the will of God, they will remain. The one who does the will of God are those who have been called out of the world into the light. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus said this, Who is my brother? The one who does the will of the Father. True happiness that God offers to his children is eternal. It's not fleeting. It's not temporal. It's forever. It is then a shameful thing, Calvin says, for us to be entangled with the world, which with all its benefits will soon vanish away. What is the most precious in the world and deemed especially desirable is nothing but a shadowy phantom. End quote. It brings to mind a, a poem I've read many times by Charles T. Studd. And there's a phrase that he repeats throughout the poem. He says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
John says in Revelation 12, 11, And they have conquered him, talking about the devil, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. The command is simple. Don't love the world, love God. But as we read the letter in the whole, we do struggle with sin. But our place is what? In the light. And God does what? Keep us, guide us, and preserve us. And for the one who doesn't know Christ, the one who may be in darkness and not even realize it, the one who is in the world and doesn't even know it's succumbed to its structure, the beauty of it is that we were of the world, but God what drew us out of it. And that is grace. You know, in the middle of Henry's sermon, Ramon always comes to me with these questions, and he came to one today. He says, what is grace? And I whisper in here, he says, that which you do not deserve. And the thing is, um, those of us who are in the light, those of us who are what? Not, who love the Father, and the Father loves us. It is not something we earn. It's grace, and it's a gift. And that's why what we worship and gather here. And what? I tell people, we're not very fancy, but we preach the same message every Sunday. Christ crucified. That he what came to draw us out of darkness, cleanse us with his blood and his broken body. And through him we can have communion and fellowship with the Father. And until what? He returns and brings us to him. For he has prepared a place for us. We what? We worship and sing about him. We sing the same songs. We recite the same creeds. Because what? It's all about him. And that's why John writes this. Because it's so crucial, so important. You cannot be wrong here. You must make sure you're in the light. You must make sure that you do not love the world. Because to be wrong here is to be dead wrong and for eternity. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. For the one who is in Christ, it is good news. For God, we dwell in the light because you have brought us to the light. You have made us new. We have been born again. We were dead, but now we live. We were blind, but now we see. And we love the Father because he first loved us. But Lord, we pray. For the one who doesn't know you, pray, God, that you would draw him to yourself. You would break his heart. Lord, that he would not find rest or peace till he bends a knee and surrenders his life to you. For there is nothing more satisfying, there is no greater joy than to be a son, an adopted son and daughter of God. But that's only through faith and belief in Christ as your Lord and Savior. So we pray, Lord, for the one who doesn't know you. We pray for your church. That we would be bold in our message. It would be clear with our gospel. And that we would be prayful on our knees for them, Lord. We worship you and praise you. For you have been good. For who you are and for everything you have done. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.